This evening I'd like to speak about leading from the heart. It's kind of interesting being in the situation where one may have some sense that the evening's entertainment is uh, dependent on what happens to come out of one's mouth. And I sometimes at the uh, this time of the day as the minutes are sort of moving along and wonder, well, I guess I don't have to go down. And I wonder what would happen. And it's not out of a, a lack of a, a, a wanting to, it's just out of a, a curiosity sometimes. I think, hmm, what would happen? Will they just sit there? There's a, a way in which as we seek to understand our life, to understand life, we could perhaps reflect on that very word and wonder what is it to stand under, to stand under our life, rather than standing over it with a big stick, but actually to stand under it. There's, it sort of evokes a quality of some humility to perhaps bow to one's life. And it's not an uncommon situation for us, I think. And certainly some of you have spoken today about finding yourself in a situation, we could call it being here, we could say it's a particular circumstance and not really knowing what to do, not really knowing how to do it perhaps not even being quite sure who it is that should be doing it in the first place. And there's a way in which it's really important for us to acknowledge that some of the most important things we don't really know in the way that we would wish to, in a way that would give us a a certainty or a, a fixedness of direction that we could rely on. To acknowledge that that's actually where we are. That's actually where we begin from. A condition of of innocence, in fact, is actually where we begin from, where we don't know how to do it. And yet, we somehow come with the expectation or the demand or the pressure that we should know how to do it. We should be able to get it right. And as a a place to begin from, one might give oneself permission to get it wrong. Give oneself permission to not have to actually know it or understand in advance how it should be, how you should be, what you should do. The Buddha, in speaking to people such as ourselves, in making his initial connection with them, he had a very clear sense of where to begin. And it wasn't 
something about getting it right or a position or even what to do. But what he would invite people and perhaps it might be useful to invite ourselves in the same spirit is to connect with their basic goodness. To connect with our basic goodness of aspiration, goodness of heart. To remember what it is that at the bottom of it all, before the complication and the confusion and the mistakes, where we actually coming, are coming from, where we have emerged into this engagement with our life from. If we look there, what we'll see is that we have this aspiration to be a good person, to be happy, to be free, may express itself in different forms. But there is this movement in our hearts, in our being. And we look at our lives, and this the Buddha encouraged, to look and see, to look and see, to remember and to reflect on the times when we've actioned, when we've acted from that goodness. The moments of kindness, the acts of generosity, the places where we've actually found ourselves in touch with and able to live in a way in which we are connected to that basic goodness. It's so easy to focus on, to dwell upon and to highlight all the times when we didn't manage to do that. And certainly we'll find plenty of them as well. But to to connect with that sense of our wish for happiness, for well-being. The, the essential heartfulness and kindness that is there in that. That care for our own well-being. That care for the well-being of others. It is from this place that the whole of spiritual practice unfolds. It's equally from this place that our life, in whatever form it takes, unfolds whether or not it seems to be taking a spiritual direction. This displaces the wellspring, is the root from which it all moves. And of course on top of that are built and constructed many layers, many patterns, many habits, not all of which lead, in fact, in the direction of that initial movement. And some, it seems, lead in the opposite direction. but to drop below all of that. Particularly when we're not sure, when we're not clear where to go or how to get there. Just back into trusting. Trusting that place that we come from that might rather sadly seem unfamiliar to us because we've spent so little time reconnecting with it. And in dropping back into that place and reconnecting with that that sense of basic concern, basic interest and well-being, and connecting with that, what we will often notice and find is that we feel the pressure and the weight of the movements and the currents the patterns and the habits 
that actually take us away from that. That actually seem to disconnect us from that connection. That seem to put it out of our view as though it was not even there. And a lot of what we find, what we see in our hearts, takes the form of fear. You may think how much time in our lives, how many actions in our lives have been born of fear, of wishing to somehow and in some way escape, avoid, get rid of, disconnect from that which is difficult, that which is hard, that which is not easy to bear or to receive or to hold in our lives. Just how much of our life, our time, our energy, our actions comes from this movement. And looking at that movement, what, 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 what is it that's going on? In our life, sometimes things hurt. Sometimes things are painful. And there can be a sense that we can't deal with this pain. We can't hold it. It's too much for us. And that in an act of seeming kindness, or trying to care for and protect ourselves, we close down, we shut off, we contract. Feeling that it's not possible, it's too difficult to stay that open, to stay vulnerable, to stay tender, to allow ourselves to be touched by the poignancy of our experience, the rawness, the harshness at times. And in closing down, in disconnecting from our difficult experience, we equally disconnect from ourselves. We find our heart starting to harden. Because it's not just that we, in a rather neutral fashion, start to separate or remove ourselves from what is difficult. We actually find within us views arising about what's going on. And the view tends to take as its basic form, although expressed in many different ways, it tends to take the basic form that there's something wrong here because it hurts. Even if it only hurts some of the time, there's something wrong. When things aren't hurting, we don't ever think something's wrong or very rarely. But so quickly the mind moves to that something's wrong. And then, what is it that's wrong? Very easily, that moves in two directions. It either means there's something wrong with something out there, some person, some situation, or there's something wrong in here. There's something wrong with me. And when we have that sense of something wrong, it's not right, it's not okay, it shouldn't be this way. 
What then happens is we easily find the fear, the movement of fear and the disconnection that that creates hardening into a position of anger. Where we're not simply seeking to move away from that which is difficult or close down to it, but we actually find ourselves more actively engaged in pushing away, in striking out at, and perhaps even seeking to harm or destroy that which is difficult. And we can see that movement, perhaps in its most painful expression, where we see it directed towards ourselves. Though equally we can see it as it moves towards others, towards situations. And the sense that there's something wrong, that's very closely bound up with it, that we believe in so strongly. And because there's something wrong, we're justified in holding that position of anger. If we don't hold that position of anger, then the wrongness will just continue. We've got to do something about it. And so being angry is what seems to give us the motivation or the strength to fight it off, to struggle with it, to push it away or perhaps even destroy it. And in that movement, in that in that force, in that power that the anger can take within us. The connection to the heart is severed, it seems. We, we, we have very little sense of a connection with goodness and with caring. It seems that they're almost fundamentally opposed qualities or experiences. But we can look, we can, just as the fear is there in somehow trying to protect us, equally so too is the movement of anger. It's somehow trying to protect us, to defend us from that which is difficult. And yet, if in doing so it has the effect of disconnecting us from what is most, most precious in our being, then it doesn't actually serve us. And we might then look at it and say, I have to get rid of that. I have to fix the fear. I have to get rid of the anger. Or whatever, whatever else it might be. And very easily we can find ourselves in fear of the fear. Angry about the anger that we find within ourselves. And an undercurrent of these qualities seeming to pervade our lives, seeming to quietly but insidiously infiltrate into so many places, so many corners, so many aspects of how we experience and how we respond to our world and to ourselves. To reflect, to contemplate on that sometimes brings us into contact with a sense of sadness, a sense of regret. This isn't what we wished for. This isn't actually what we set out 
to bring into being. And yet, quite often it's where we find ourselves. So how do we respond to it? How do we respond to it? There are many ways we can approach these experiences and the the power that the forces of fear and of anger have in our life and the seeming capacity they have to close down our hearts. But one way that we can approach it is we can come back to that sense of our basic goodness. that sense of what our basic aspiration in life is. And perhaps just connecting with what that is, invite it. Invite it to speak to us. What does the situation need? How can I respond to this place where there is fear? With fear, It always seems to be about the future. Something that may be going to happen to us, that will be difficult, that would be painful, that may be overwhelming. It may be the pain in our body. It may be the chaos of our mind. It may be the complexity of our world and the demands and the pressures that it places upon us that we find so difficult to face, to bear, to be with. And yet just to acknowledge our own wish for well-being in the face of that fear. And to acknowledge that we don't know what's going to happen. Fear is always about the future. But it's happening right now. Fear is always happening right now. And the trick that it plays on our mind And on our heart is to trick us into thinking that the story of the future, the scenarios that it's creating, the imagination of what might be, what could be, is what is real. And it's not. What is real is that the fear is an experience happening here and now. And the fear can be telling a story about so many things about what will happen in our lives, about who we are, about maybe we're discovering that we really are who we wished we weren't, whatever it might be. Of course, that discovery would be just another expression of the fear to think that that was who we were. But to see that fear is now, to meet it now, what does that ask of us? to actually recognize that fear is here. To ask ourselves, what is it like, this experience that is so powerful? What would it be to open to that fact that this is fear, rather than enact the fear in the thinking and in the action, and see in doing what it's suggesting we do, which is all this process of avoidance. Escape, running away. 
don't know if you've ever had that experience, maybe in a dream or something, where there's a sense of something frightening behind you. And everything is saying, don't look at it, it's going to be scary. You know, even run, get out of here. It's going to be scary when you don't want to know what that is or you don't want to see it, it's a monster. And everything in the fear is saying, don't go there, don't look, don't see that. That's the story of the fear. And yet, if it's actually possible to stop and turn and look, what does one see? It may be a monster. It may be who knows what. But in stopping and looking, one is no longer the prisoner of the fear. And although the experience may be just as difficult as we thought, often it's not, in fact, but it may be. We have no guarantee of that. But the, the difficulty of the experience isn't actually the real difficulty. It's the fear that has a grip on our heart that's closing us, that's crushing us. That we actually release ourselves from, not by resolving all the potential problems of the future, which we can't resolve. Not now, not here. We can only resolve what is here. And what is here is the fear. Turning to it is actually opening in the face of its demand to close down. And in opening, it actually takes the energy away from the fear and gives it back to the heart that is willing to stay present in the face of that experience. And yet sometimes, as I said, it's gone beyond fear. It's the, the experience of anger, the experience of wanting to strike out at, to push away, perhaps even to destroy, which is rage, when we're out of control and we just want to destroy. There's, there's a process that goes on behind that experience, whereby there's a way that we've looked at what's happening. We've seen perhaps someone doing something that's really harmful. It seems to be really obvious that this is really going to hurt people or it's really going to hurt me. And they're doing it or they've done it anyway. And it seems like we're really justified in pushing them away or even hurting them in return. You know, they've got to learn a lesson. If they don't see how painful this is for me, or for someone I care for, something I care for, how much harm it's doing, the only way they'll see that is by experiencing that much harm themselves. That's what happens in the anger. And it can happen, as I said before, to ourselves, where we see that we've done things in our life that have harmed other people. We've done things that have harmed ourselves. And when we see that, when we recognize that, and we all, we've all done it, we've all done these things, so easily what happens is a sense of anger towards ourselves and a, a sense of punishing ourselves for that. As though somehow, you know, like in the, the old sort of medieval practices of self-flagellation, as if you could purify that which is impure by sort of inflicting pain upon yourself, beating yourself, or... Um, you know, with whips and all of that. And there's a way in which we, we, we 
we sort of push at ourselves, pick at ourselves, press on ourselves in, in, in a movement of anger. Because it seems like to do that is the only way we'll cure ourselves of the, of the tendency to make mistakes and hurt ourselves. But we make mistakes in life. It's the only way we can learn. We make mistakes because that essential quality of innocence that is what we are born of and born into is one that doesn't always know the right way, that doesn't always make the right choice, that can't always find the right words or the right action. And if we look and see at the things we've done that hurt others, that hurt ourselves, we might actually see that in every such occasion what's actually been happening is that in some way we were in pain. In some way we ourselves were hurting. And in an attempt to escape from that pain, in our own fear of the pain that we were in, we, we struck out blindly. We did something, we said something, we reacted in a way that we could call unskillful in sort of spiritual language. We could say it was just bad, it was harmful. When it gets uh, taken to a, a really tragic extreme, we talk about evil. It was evil what they did or what I did. To look into one's life, to look into one's heart and see, this is certainly something that I've done for myself, to see. And I think you'll see yourself also, that where we've caused harm, where we've hurt others, even supposedly intentionally at times, where we've really known that this is going to hurt someone and done it, where that's coming from is a place of our own pain that we weren't able to hold. There's a, there's a story, there's an image which once some time ago came to mind which for me really helps me sense and hold what this, what this means, what I'm speaking about here. So I just invite you to just imagine this scenario as I describe it. You may like to close your eyes or not, as you wish. But just imagine going for a walk in the woods, in the trees, just having a pleasant, enjoyable walk. Been on a retreat at Gaia House and, you know, enjoying the scenery. Finally got away from that walking meditation. Just going for a walk in the woods. And you see a small puppy near a tree. And having some enjoyment and appreciation for small furry creatures and puppies and maybe even really liking them. You reach your hand out to, to stroke it. Just a gesture of friendship and kindness. And it bites your hand. Just imagine your reaction in the moment when its teeth sink into your hand. What is it going to be? You horrible creature. Probably less polite than that. Maybe our arm might rise up to strike out at it. I'll teach it a lesson. It shouldn't bite people. It's a really bad dog. And then, just as you're in the midst of that reaction to it, you notice that actually one of its feet is caught in a gin trap, one of those spring-loaded traps with the jaws that 
clamp onto the legs of little creatures in the woods. And you see immediately that it's in pain. That this creature is terrified and in agony. And it's somehow trying to get out of it. It's, it's crying out for help, in fact, in biting your hand. And in that moment, perhaps you might just find that, ah, oh, you see what's happening. It wasn't trying to hurt you. Even though it clearly intended to bite your hand, it wasn't trying to hurt you in its heart of hearts. It was simply trying to escape its pain. And rather than seeking to strike that creature, rather than seeking to hurt it or teach it a lesson, one would be moved to actually do what one could for it, perhaps to release it from the trap. Perhaps one would be moved to destroy the trap whatever it might be. And then, just having that sense, what that might mean for us, how when we, when we can see the place of pain in another or in ourselves, where we act from, we actually find ourselves in touch with a capacity to forgive. A capacity to let go of the hardness and the rigidity of the position where we take where we have condemned or rejected something or someone or some part of ourselves because it hurt us because it wasn't strong enough to perhaps hold its own pain in that time, in that moment, in that place and so then, just another scenario you can imagine going into the woods again, going for a walk. Having forgotten about the last time, there's a small puppy. Reach out to stroke it, sweet creature, bites your hand. You can't see its feet, it's standing up to its sort of shoulders in uh, a pile of leaves. What would it mean to actually realise that even though you can't see it, its foot is in a trap? because you understand that the nature of puppies is not to bite you except when they're in pain to look at yourself and see that when you've acted in a way that hurts someone else even if you couldn't see the pain that had driven you to that to know that there must be there to be interested to understand that rather than to condemn, to judge, or to reject it. To reflect in this way is to begin to find a way back to find a way back to our hearts. All too easily, that basic movement of seeking to care for our own well-being gets overlaid by positions and strategies, views and opinions, lots of information and skill and expertise. And all too often, that gets diverted gets drawn off in ways that don't actually help, that take us away. But never 
actually, in an ultimate way, remove us or disconnect us. They only create that appearance. The tendency to find us living our life in the world of thought, dominated by thinking, carried away by our positions and our views, in the in the belief that they are true, that they are right, that we really do know, that we really can trust the content of our thinking minds. This takes us away from that essential goodness because thinking really doesn't know. It thinks it does. Of course it would, wouldn't it? wouldn't be very important if it didn't know. But ultimately it can't lead us where we seek to go. Ultimately it can't return us to that place from which we begin and which we seek to rediscover. great Thai forest meditation teacher and Dharma teacher, forest monk, Ajahn Buddhadasa, was once asked, how would you describe the world? He replied in three words, how would I describe the world? Lost in thought. Sound familiar? Lost in thought. We give so much power to the thinking mind, to believing what it says. There's a, there's a great story, a true story in fact, some of you may have heard about a, uh, a man who lived, lives in America, his name was Larry. Larry had a thought. Larry said, Larry had this thought when he was quite young, he said, I want to fly. And this thought was one that he repeated. I want to fly as he grew up. And he thought, I know what, I know how to fly. I'll join the Air Force. So when, as soon as he became old enough to join the Air Force, he signed up because he wanted to fly. He thought, I want to fly. This is what I want. And uh, sadly, it turned out that when he went through his basic training and his checkups, his eyesight wasn't quite perfect. So he wanted to fly, but in fact he wasn't allowed to. You had to have perfect eyesight to be aircrew, to be a pilot or a navigator in the Air Force. So he worked on the ground just fixing the planes. When they land, he'd sort of, he was a mechanic. And yet he still wanted to fly. He wanted to fly. And one day he had another thought. He said, I know what I can do. So he went to the local hardware shop and he uh, bought three barrage balloons, big inflatable sort of weather balloons you can actually buy and a cylinder of, uh, of helium and some rope and he took it home and he uh, tied his deck chair, his sun lounger, to his jeep and then he uh, tied the balloons to his deck chair and inflated them. So they were floating up in the sky and then he got himself uh, some sandwiches and a thermos flask and his air rifle, his little, his pallet gun. And he thought, well, I'll just uh, cut the rope to the jeep and 
float up about maybe 30 yards up in the sky, he thought, and I can just sort of enjoy flying. And he thought, wow, this is great. So he thought, oh, it could be a bit wobbly up there. So he actually took a, a sort of a belt and strapped himself into the, into the deck chair. And there he was holding on to his, uh, his sandwiches and his thermos with his air rifle under his arm. And he cut the rope, attaching the deck chair to the jeep. And he started to rise. It was great. He went up 30 metres, 60, 100, 200, 1,000, 2,000. And he kept going up and up and up until he reached 12,000 feet. At this point he'd achieved his wish. He was flying. It wasn't quite what he thought it would be. And the air rifle which he'd brought with him so that he could just shoot the balloons and come down when he wanted to, he realised it might not be such a good idea at 12,000 feet to just shoot the balloons in case he came down rather too quickly. So he started, he just sat there. And because you don't just stay in one place in any situation, it turns out there's wind up there at 12,000 feet and he started to blow. And he blew quite a long way. In fact, he blew into the airspace of the Los Angeles airport. And they picked him up on the radar. And since he hadn't made radio contact, unidentified flying object, they sent a jet up there to check it out. And uh, in the jet, uh, he, uh, it's hard to imagine quite what the uh, experience was for the jet pilot, but he was up there reporting that there was a, uh, a man in a deck chair with some balloons and seemed to, he was armed. <laughs> and they uh, sort of kind of worried whether this was a security threat of some sort. But they reasonably quickly worked out that he was relatively harmless and uh, his uh, sandwiches were rather sort of cold and unappetizing at this point. But he'd actually got them out and eaten them. And so they sent a helicopter up to try and rescue him. And uh, of course the helicopter, as soon as it got anywhere near him, just blew him further away because of the balloons. And blew him out over the ocean in fact. And eventually they managed to uh, lower a a rope ladder long enough down so that he could actually grab it and cut himself free of the deck chair and the balloons just up into the sky. And they uh, took him up into a helicopter, brought him back to the air base and uh, arrested him for violating federal airspace without permission. (laughs) And so, you know, some of the thoughts that you've had on your cushion, you may think they've taken you for a ride. But they really do take us for a ride. They really do. When we give them that authority, when we believe that the thought that says, this is what I want, this is what I need, this is what I must do. When we give it the authority of truth, look where it leads us. Look where it takes us. That very thinking is coming from a basic assumption. A basic assumption about our life which is not true. The thinking that takes us away. And the basic assumption is that this is who we are. That this thinking is somehow a statement about our truth. The feelings which are being experienced is who we are. And we can get so caught up in the feelings. The thoughts are one thing that takes us away. 
And equally the feelings can take us away. We can become lost, submerged, overwhelmed by the feelings, the movements of our heart. And sometimes they can be difficult, painful. We feel that they'll never go away. There's a beautiful passage in The Prophet by Khalil Gibran where he says if I can remember If you can look, it's not exactly word for word, if you can look with wonder upon the miracle of your life, then your sorrow would not seem less wondrous than your joy. And you would watch the seasons of your heart, just as you have always watched the seasons that pass over your fields. And you would look on with serenity through the winter of your grief. There's something I find incredibly touching about that image of the seasons of the heart. We so often get stuck in places that are difficult. Sadness, grief, depression, anger, fear, loneliness shame, embarrassment, rage, guilt, whatever they may be, we get stuck in them. We resist them because we feel that we shouldn't have to experience this. We can't. It's too much. And in resisting them and struggling with them, we actually solidify them. We, We give them power. We give them strength. We give them weight. If we actually just trust that they are what they are, they are not who we are. They are simply the movements that pass through the life of our heart. To trust that they have the nature of seasons, that they move as the seasons move, and that, of course, we'd all like it to be summer throughout the year. Wouldn't it be nice? sunny, beautiful, warm. But life can't sustain summer. It can't keep doing that. There needs to be a time of slowing down, of autumn, and a time of dying back, which we call winter. When, when the growing slows right down, when things die away, when the old passes in order to make room for the new. And yet to trust that in the winter, the seeds of spring are to be found. Because winter equally cannot be forever. Winter changes into spring. And that which is new and fresh and young arises out, out of that which has died away, which is old, which we have to let go of. And when we sense and when we see that cyclic movement of life, of our heart, of our world, 
we can find space and ease in the times of difficulty because we know they are not forever. To watch with serenity through the winter of our grief is to know that it is but winter. It is not what is ultimate. It is not absolute or permanent. It is part of the nature of life which is to rise and to fall, to flow and to move. And we only become disconnected from it when we resist that flow and that movement, when we struggle with it, when we say that somehow it's not okay for this to be happening. And yet we wouldn't. We wouldn't go outside in December and say, you know, it really shouldn't be winter. It just shouldn't be winter. It's all wrong. We wouldn't if we were living in New Zealand where I come from. Then it would be wrong because December's the middle of summer there. But somehow we do this with ourselves, with our lives. And in doing that, we lose we lose the quality of holding our life and the quality of allowing our life to hold us, which are which are the two elements of what we cultivate in our practice. There's a quality in which we're simply learning to hold our experience, to receive it, to be there, to bring a quality of unconditional acceptance to what is going on. A quality that just receives, because it's there. Because that is, in fact, the miracle of our life in this moment. And yet at the same time as we hold it, as we perhaps cradle it as we would a small baby, just, just receiving it. You know, small babies are cute, beautiful. Sometimes they're a bit smelly though and they, you know, produce some sort of bodily flu- fluids at both ends. And, you know, we don't just drop them when they do that. They, we understand what to do with them. It's quite natural and holds it. Maybe one needs to take care but too easily our life or our experience we kind of want to drop it because there's something unpleasant coming out of one of its ends. We can't do it. But if we actually settle back into what's happening we see that it happens. If we don't resist it it actually is what comes out of us. And we don't even feel it coming out of us. We see it's what comes out of life. So just as we hold what we receive. Life holds us as part of what life receives. And that there's an expansion. There's an expansion of our heart that goes on in that process. And a sense that where we've perhaps felt and believed and our mind in its, again, in its innocence, not to blame our minds. It can be so easy to blame our minds. Just as easy as to blame ourselves or someone else. But actually, it's not our mind's fault. Don't need to be hard on your mind. Again, innocence. Innocence. That which doesn't really know. But unfortunately thinks it does. That's ignorance. When it thinks it does, it's ignorance. When it knows it doesn't, then it's just innocence again. 
and remembering. But we don't know. If we knew, we'd have done it right the first time, wouldn't we? We're not silly. But we don't. We're learning. That's why we're here. And so, that movement of, or connecting with that movement of expansion, of allowing our being to expand. So much of our struggle with the thoughts and the feelings that we experience and our need to get them the way we think they should be is because we believe they are who we are. They become what is familiar to us because that's where all our attention goes, or so much of it. And our body as well, of course, but in fact, we probably have figured out by now that we're not our body, you know, when we cut our fingernails, we don't sit there thinking, whoops, there's a bit of me gone, you know. It's not like we're diminished every time we visit the bathroom. Whoops, there goes, you know, there's some real letting go. No, we, we see that this sort of, this, we maybe think we own this body, but we don't really think we are this body, because we can see it. It's kind of more obvious. But we, we, we sense in some way that we are these thoughts and feelings, that this is really what is true. But look at them. Look at how they change in the space of a day or two. Look at how many different ones there are, how many varieties. And yet, see, in that movement of them, that we can't really fix them, we can't really grab hold of them. But we give them so much weight. We become, it's like we we want to live there because it seems familiar, it seems safe, even if it's actually really painful to live in the world of the thought, to be constantly caught up in the emotion. Even the really difficult ones, because they become familiar, they feel safe. And there's this this sad, tragic condition where we choose what is safe rather than what is true. Where we lean towards comfort and in that comfort are kind of a disconnected, stagnated, stilted condition, but comfortable. That's sort of what we lean towards. We're much less willing to to stay in a place that's more open, that's less comfortable, but that's more alive, that's more dynamic. It's hard for us to do that. It seems to go against what makes sense. I mean, why stay somewhere that's difficult? But as we learn, as we see that it's not the somewhere or the something that is difficult, it's actually how we're meeting it that makes it difficult. It's actually what we're doing with it that determines the quality of the experience, the quality of our life. And that when what we're doing with it is driven by our minds and our thinking and our views and our judgments and our condemnations and our likes and our dislikes, then it, it just seems to lead to more struggle, more difficulty. But when we actually just settle back into that sense of trusting in basic goodness, in simple okayness, that things are just okay, that we are just okay, then that, that quality of heartfulness starts to show itself as something which is not subject to boundaries. 
Boundaries are something we create in our minds by the way we think about. Think about me here and you there. And we're separate. That's a thought. I'm here, you're there. This is body. This is cushion. This is us. And out there is the world. That happens in the mind. When we believe it, we solidify that experience. We start to act on I've got to protect me from that. Not understanding that that's not actually true. That that appearance of me and that, and somehow that impinging on me, isn't actually the truth. It's the appearance, but it's not the truth. And that separation, when that separation isn't happening, when we're not so believing, the mind might still do its number, but we don't believe it. Just giving some space to it. That quality of heartfulness is actually something which in its simple presence, in simply noticing that it's there and recognizing that the boundaries are not. The heartfulness is there and ultimately the boundaries are not. We actually find that heartfulness, that kindness, that caring, is something that has extension, depth. And in some ways we might not even say extension or depth because in the absence of boundary that doesn't really mean very much. We just see that it is and that it is boundless. And that the space of warmth, of kindness, in which we receive our life, in which we bow down to our life, not necessarily knowing exactly what that is or even how to do that, and yet trusting that we can. In that space of opening up, of bowing down to our life, to all of it, we may find that we start to connect, to be touched by a a different quality of knowing, a different quality of understanding that is not of the head, of the mind, of the thinking and conceptualizing, but that is of the heart, a knowing of the heart, and a knowing of fullness, a fullness of the heart, a fullness of life. When the heart is not divided, there is fullness. And heartfulness is that, is that simple being that receives and is received just as is. May all beings be free from fear and anger. May all beings trust in their basic goodness.
may all beings open into the boundless. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.